I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theater Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theater. If you've been enjoying the American Theater Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theater that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. My guest today is Ken Page, a legendary theater performer beloved by many longtime musical theater fans. Most will remember him as Old Deuteronomy in the original Broadway cast of the Tony Award-winning musical Cats, or for his Drama Desk Award-nominated performance in the Tony Award-winning Ain't Misbehavin'. His other Broadway credits include playing the Cowardly Lion in The Wiz and Nicely Nicely Johnson in the all-black revival of Guys and Dolls. In London's West End, he also starred in Children of Eden and My One and Only. Aside from his many theater credits, Page may be best known as the voice of Mr. Oogie Boogie in Tim Burton's cult classic, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and for his film appearances in Dreamgirls, Torch Song Trilogy, and All Dogs Go to Heaven. Page has performed his one-man concert, Page by Page, across the country, and the show has been recorded live and released by LML Music. Ken can also be heard on various original Broadway cast recordings, film soundtracks, and compilations. Hi, Ken. Hello, hello. I'm turning my phone down so you won't hear any noises. <laughs> Sounds great. Welcome to American Theatre Artists Online Podcast. We're so happy to have you. It's great to be here. I'm honored and thank you for asking. Well, I was really excited to hear that you could join us because to me, you are a, I know you may not like this word, but you are a legendary theater performer. I have been, you know, following your career uh, for a while and I remember being a small child uh, growing up in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where I grew up, where there wasn't a lot, a lot of musical theater, but my parents had the VHS of the 1982 Ain't Misbehavin' uh, production. I guess it was a, a, a recording of, of the Broadway, original Broadway cast. And I remember seeing you in that. And then a few years later, my dad taking me to New York to see Cats. And, or maybe just around that same time, the memory's fuzzy, but the performances are not. And seeing you in Cats and saying to myself, two, a one man can do these two things that are very different. That's theater. Yes, so yes. thank you so much for being on. I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. How are and you? You know, it's funny. You never know where where what you do is reaching. You know, you do something specifically on film or anything like that, and you don't. I mean, I've been very lucky to, uh, thinking about it from a, a theater point of view mm-hmm. to have things that I have done in the theater were actually put on to tape or filmed or whatever. I'm very lucky that way. I mean, there's a lot more of it now, 
but back when we did the uh, NBC television special is what it was of Ain't Misbehaving, that wasn't happening very often, especially the whole cast and, and you know, virtually the same show. To be able to have that um, immortalized, I guess is the right word, is yeah. rare. Mm-hmm. You know, back then, you know, you got something Lincoln Center, but that was about the size of it. And then you couldn't really see it. You had mm-hmm. to have special dispensations and all sorts of things. So to get to do that, and of course, you know, we did a filmed version of Cats from London in, I think, 90, whatever it was. And uh, again, thank God my performance in Cats is preserved. It's very rare that that happens. So point being, it reaches far more people Clearly. than just being in the theater does, which yeah. is great. It's amazing. And so you reach me way out there in South America. Yes, like down there. Who'd see who would have thought. There right. you go. And it made me, you know, want to do theater. And, you know, and, and then as a kid, seeing Cats live, seeing you live, getting to do both. Yes. Uh, see you live and on film. That's so wonderful. And, you know, I do try to, I did for many years, try to replicate you and Nell Carter in Honeysuckle Rose uh, in my shower. <laughs> but I never quite, I never, you know. place to do it, but I am. <laughs> I know, I sound so much better there. But anyway, so talk to me a bit about, because I know you have some St. Louis roots, right? But uh, tell me a bit about your start in theater, because that's something I don't know anything about. Was this something you always wanted to do, or did you have a mentor or someone who helped you lead the way? How did you find your way to the stage? Well, yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) I I started singing in choruses when I was in, like, fourth grade. You know, Mm. there was the group called the Marian Choristers. I went to Catholic school for all 14 years of my education. And there was a group called the Marian Choristers. And I was in an inner city school and they used to take us on Friday afternoons to this school across town, which was in basically the white neighborhood at the time of white school. Mm-hmm. The The commonality was that we had the same order of nuns. Oh. Sisters of the most precious blood. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, that was how we got over there, more so than any kind of urban kind of renewal kind of thing. It was that we had nuns who were orchestrating. But I sang in that chorus from fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, uh, sixth grade, I want to say. And then the woman, the wonderful nun, who was my mentor, to answer that question as well, her name was Sister Ruth Cecilia, and St. Cecilia is the patron saint of music who left the convent after a few years, and Lois Zitzman. But she was a wonderful, amazing woman who then left that school and came to our school. Now, our school had no speech programs, no music, nothing like that at all. She came to the school and she instituted uh, uh, instruments, music. She started, there was a, a, a intramural uh, speech program in St. Louis called the Bellarmine Speech League. My cousin was in it. But um, we didn't have that at our school. You know, you studied and you worked on your speeches for X amount of time. And then you went to these big meets where you'd go and you'd have four rounds and you'd get a ribbon at the end, all of that. Hmm. She came to our school and instituted all of that, which we did not have to read. She asked, she begged musicians to come in and give us music lessons. And so she gave this inner city black school the arts. We did not have them. So in answer to two questions, you know, I started there and this was because of her. Now, when I started doing all my speech, you know, training and things like that, music I had been singing and so forth. um, And it came time to go to high school. It was then like, well, where do you send myself and my best friend, Luther, who was also a singer and speech? Where do you send these two young black males where they can continue 
the training that they've had thus far. Mm. And they were ready to send us off to the district high school, which was an all-black high school, Catholic. But they had no music, no speech, like mm. our grade school didn't have. And they were ready for us to go there because they thought, well, that's where you go. You know, that's where the, <laughs> the kids from your area go there. That's yeah. it. And at the time, to be fair, every area had its own diocesan high school they used to call them in. And you went to the one that was in your district. But unfortunately, like we know now with systemic racism, if you will, it was already a pre-decided idea that where you went was already under par, so to speak. The school was great, but they didn't have everything that a lot of the white schools had. It just wasn't there. So this same woman fought to get myself and uh, my friend Luther to go to this high school called Bishop Duberg, one of the big French bishops of St. Louis back in the day, to go to this high school because they had a full music program. They had chorus, they had instruments, they had speech, they had drama, they did musicals. And she fought. I found out later, she literally went to the office of the archdiocese and the speech that she later told me, she says, I told them, you're making these these pronouncements about helping these kids and you want to help them do better and you want to do this, you, you want to do that and you're already deciding their future because you won't let them go somewhere where they can get the things that you're saying they deserve to have. Wow. You're telling them they can't go there because of some rules and regulations. Okay, to make a long story short, we were accepted. <laughs> Great. And we were able to go to Bishop DeBerg. And that's where I really began my formal training uh, in music and theater. Interestingly wow. enough, my freshman, we were talking about Barbara Streisand before, my freshman year, we did Funny Girl at our school. Oh. And I played a Ziegfeld tenor. And if you know that's a, his love makes you beautiful, so beautiful. Yes. And uh, of course, I was already uh, a fan of music and musicals. Uh, I was a big Barbara Streisand fan. I watched all her TV specials as a kid and so forth. And of course, I was always glued to the TV when there were any black performers on Ed Sullivan or Hollywood Palace or any of those kind of things, which were the shows at the time, because that's when you got to see the black performers. So putting putting all that together and being in high school, sophomore year, we did Oliver and I was Fagan. Junior year, we did Hello, Dolly. And I was Horace Vandergelder. And there was a big controversy because Dolly was white and I was black. This was that long ago, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And senior year, we did Fiddler on the Roof. And I always like to give great props to my high school because we did uh, a play about the the Jewish population of Russia, Mm -hmm. Fiddler on the Roof, with a black tevia. Nice. (laughs) At a Catholic high school. That's great. So, there's diversity that, for you. If that's not diverse, there's diversity in action, and it covered a lot of ground. That's and I didn't realize for years, years later, talking to people, how much impact it made because of all those things. Mm-hmm. You know, Fifth on the Roof was a big hit show. We all know that. Sure. But the Catholic community was not necessarily embracing the Jewish traditions of life and on and on and on. So they got exposed to all of that by the play itself, great. by me doing it as an African American. Wow, you know, and uh, there you go. So that was my beginnings as far as music and theater. And then when I got ready to go to college, of course, you know, I auditioned for scholarships and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was accepted, to make a long story a bit shorter, I was accepted into a university here, which was a college at the time called Fontbonne. A lot of French. Bishop Duberg, Fontbonne. A lot of French up there, yes. Uh, 
Yeah, a lot of friends, a lot of French settlement. Well, St. Louis was a French settlement. Right. But at any rate, uh, so I went there to major in theater, and I went for two years, and at the same time, I was in the ensemble at the Muni here in St. Louis. We call oh. it the Muni now. Back then, it was called the St. Louis Municipal Opera. Right. And uh, I was in the ensemble there at 18, and that exposed me to the professional theater. Wonderful. And by the time I was through my second year in college, I was ready to go to New York. I was like, I'm out of here. They did Seesaw. They brought in Seesaw that last summer uh. <laughs> from, from New York, and I fell in love with it, and it glorified New York. And yes. there were all these amazing people in the show who later, most of them became friends. And uh, it inspired me to want to go to New York. So in 1976, I went to New York City. Wow. And I'll end that part of the story there because well, I'm no, sure about the question. No, I do, but that's, but that's that's a great start. I mean, you know, and thanks. It to, is a great start. Thanks to Sister Cecilia, right? Ruth Cecilia. Ruth, Ruth Cecilia. Cecilia. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you know, and, and at Bishop DeBerg High School, you got you got those opportunities. You know, I was just thinking Absolutely. you played a Horace Vandergelder. I wonder, did you get to play it before or during the when there was an all black version of Hello Dolly on Broadway with um, Pearl Well, Davis. this was after because. Yeah. One of the first shows that I saw at the Muni as an audience member, my best friend Luther, that I spoke about, his mother took us to the Muni yeah. to see Pearl Bailey and Cap Calloway in Hello Dolly. Oh. They brought the entire company in from New York. Wow. They used to do that back then. Now people go, "That's not true. You're making that up." I said, "I'm telling you." <laughs> you were there. They brought in appla- <laughs> well. They brought in applause. They brought in seesaw. Wonderful. They brought in yeah. uh, Hello Dolly yeah. because the Muni is it seats eleven thousand people, sure. so they could shut the down the show down on Broadway and bring it to the Muni for seven performances and make three times the money they make on Broadway. Yeah, you know, so it was to their advantage, but that did happen at the time. So I got, what also inspired me was I got to see all of these Broadway shows Great. at the Muni in St. Louis before mm-hmm. I ever went to New York. Wow. Um, so yeah, I did get to see Pro Bailey and, and, and Cap wow. Calloway before I did it. Right. So it yeah. didn't feel for you totally um, no! like foreign. Right. And it was for natural for Not you. Not at all. Great. I mean, that's like so very wonderful. Very natural and very much that's a great opportunity that you had. And so, so then you're, it's 1976, you said, and you're in New York um, or heading to New York. What was that like yeah. arriving in New York from St. Louis? Uh, magical. My <laughs> good friend from the Muni Chorus, Carol Ann Bosch, and I got on the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no planes for us. Right. We got on the train and we went to New York together, sort of holding hands like we're going to do this. She was an amazing dancer and so forth. And you get there, and I, you know, I like to say it was like uh, reading a, a fairy tale or book. I mean, you get off the train, you're at Penn Station. I say in my show, page by page, I thought I was going to come in and see the twinkling lights of Manhattan and so forth. And we came in underground at Penn Station in the dark. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, there was no fantasy involved. It was like, okay, you're in New York. You got that and on top of, of it, you got to come up out of Penn Station yeah. into, I don't know what, I forget what that area is called, but it's like 34th Street, which right. is jam-packed and crazy. So we were thrust, bam, right in the middle of New York, right from the first minute. Uh, but it was everything I had dreamed of for years mm. you know i read everything you know every cast album i got i read all the notes and who wrote it and where they came from i mean i really can say that i gave myself a pretty good education for somebody not in new york city about the city and broadway and um getting there i mean you know thank god you're young and you don't know what can be happening 
what you actually could have happen to you under the circumstances. And you just go for it. You know, there's a there's a blessing in, in youth, you know. Absolutely. The energy, the excitement, the Yeah, the, the you know, you don't even think about it. All you think about is what you want to do. Just you great. don't think, at least I didn't. I yeah, didn't yeah. think about what I couldn't do. I thought about what I wanted to do. Great. And so you're doing the rounds, you're doing your auditions, you're going to calls. Yeah. And what's your first quote unquote break or your first Broadway show, I guess, or, or was there, was it, did it, was it another route? How did you get your first big break? Well, uh, you know, I want to just give a footnote about the big break. Obviously Broadway sure. is another thing, but I, first thing I did was a, a production of Huckleberry Finn with a children's theater, which is very sure. uh, known children's theater at the time. It was called Fanfare, Children's Ensemble. Oh. And I want to bring it up because there were these two amazing people who ran it, Evan Thompson and Joan Shepard. Joan was the understudy for a uh, member of the wedding. She did that, oh. you know, she was, she went in and replaced and she was, the, she played scout mm-hmm. and they were what I call died in the wool theater people. Mm-hmm. And they're dear to my heart to this day because they lived it. They had a, a theater and a home all combined in a sort of like a warehouse, if you will, on West 13th, East 13th street. Wow. And their house was full of props and scenery <laughs> and all sorts of things. <laughs> and the kitchen was just like, oh, a kitchen. Is it real? Does it work? Or is that a prop? You know. Wow. But they lived the theater. They yeah. absolutely lived the theater. And they were like parents to me. They took me under their wing. We traveled to do the show a bit around the East Coast. You know, the furthest west we went was Detroit. And I should say, footnote, I saw the pre-Broadway whiz when we were there. Oh, wow. But at any rate... Um, they were amazing and wonderful, kind-hearted. It set my, I guess you would call it my uh, sense mm-hmm. of the New York theater because I didn't come into it uh, uh, rubbing elbows with the Broadway people. I okay. came into it with the salt of the earth theater people mm-hmm. who loved it and did it. They didn't make a lot of money and they were doing children's theater, but to see that in action and to see how they did it, and sewed the costumes and, you know, the making props and we'd all get in a van and drive up to Burlington, Vermont and put on a show, three shows for children. And it was really a great way to come into the New York theater. And after that, I did the last national tour of Pearly, which started out as a winter production down at the Coconut Grove Playhouse. Many people of an age will remember the Coconut Grove Mm -hmm. Playhouse. It was the best job you could get because they did winter stock. We don't even hear that anymore, right? Winter stock, which meant it was a warm climate and you'd go down in the winter and do what you, same things you did in summer stock. Mm -hmm. So when you got to go to Coconut Grove, Florida, which is in Miami, Mm -hmm. you got to go in the middle of the winter and work at this great theater and you were down in Florida and it was just kind of heaven, you know. And then we, long story, which I'll skip the details, but we went on to be a national tour out of that production and then we Mm -hmm. went to L.A., which was the L.A. premiere. Uh, at the Aquarius Theater out there. So that was my first I Call break. And then out of that company of Pearly, there were, I want to say, six or seven of us who ended up being in Guys and Dolls, the all-black production of Guys Uh and Dolls, which was my Broadway debut. But in our production of Pearly, Robert Guillaume was Pearly, and Mm -hmm. uh, Norma Donaldson was in Missy, and there was Mm -hmm. about five of us who were in the ensemble. And all of us were cast unbelievably really when you think about it except I guess maybe we were really talented we were the good people around town sure. but all of us were cast in Guys and Dolls so no, you know as you know Robert Guillaume was uh, Nathan Detroit mm-hmm. Norma Donaldson was Adelaide there I was there were like, 
four or five members who had been ensemble members of Curly who were in Guys and Dolls. So it was almost like sometimes now I have to really think I get the two shows mixed up <laughs> because it was like the same people, you know. But there was a connection between the Pearly and then the L.A. production and then into into the all-black revival of Guys and Dolls. And, wow, that's fantastic. And so in that production, you got to play Nicely Nicely. That was my role in the show. And I'll tell you a little backstory on that. I was cast as, as an ensemble member. And I was happy to have it. You know what I mean? Sure. It's Broadway. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, in the interim of whatever went on, and I never really knew what happened, the gentleman who they'd been hired to play nice and nicely was was removed or taken out or quit or whatever. And they came to me and they said, you know, you're going to be nicely, nicely. And I thought, oh, my God. Wow. Now, of course, again, I tell you, my theater training, self-training, whatever training, I knew guys and dolls. It was no, like, wow, what is that? I knew Guys and Dolls very well. I knew all the songs already, you know what I mean? So So I was prepared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, I did have five auditions, mind you. Wow. Well, sure, you (laughs) still got to prove yourself. Yeah, you still got to prove yourself. Yeah, you know, it's auditions, Broadway, right? Yeah, yeah. And... uh, Long story even shorter, I uh, was cast and we went out of town to Washington, D.C. and to yeah. Philadelphia. We followed the uh, the pre-Broadway Chicago in the Forest Theater in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And, uh, uh, you know, I came, we came to Broadway and the show opened. I mean, you know, it was controversial because it was Guys and Dolls and it was a black cast hmm. and there were people who thought we should be doing it. Why not? There had already been Pearl Bailey's company of Hello, Dolly. And then there were other people who thought Guys and Dolls was sacred. Mm. It was so New York, so idiosyncratically Jewish in a sense, at least in terms of vernacular. And they just didn't think we should be doing it. You know? So there were these two camps. Mm. The show actually, certainly in retrospect, did well, considering there was a national tour. Mm -hmm. There was a Vegas company. There was our company. You know, it did well. You don't get all of those spinoffs if a show is successful. So there is that. And a national company. The national company was uh, Debbie Allen and Maurice Hines and Leslie Uggams, you know. So um, that was my Broadway debut. And it really, I I have to say, again, looking back on it, I don't think you get a better presentation to the Broadway community than a to be in guys and dolls b to be doing nicely nicely and have that great number sit down you rock the boat and because you know as you may know they did a gospel addition or addendum mm-hmm. <laughs> to the song in our production and it used to get two and three encores a night so mm-hmm. i was really brought to the broadway community with banners flying which was pretty great what a wonderful you know what a wonderful story and a great example of of you know how fate intervenes and things happen absolutely and it's always been that way for me so many things you know there was a point where you say why am i always the second choice why don't they just give it to me first but i've realized as time has gone on the fates work it that way you know and and then what it does it is in many cases it set me up to say well i wasn't your first choice so now i'm going to prove to you that i should have been your first choice right it gives you that extra boost the benefit yeah. Yeah. And the benefits have been thus, you know, I mean, yeah. there was a thing we did uh, in L.A. This is skipping over a lot of years, but mm-hmm. uh, they used to do this thing there called stages, which were uh, Broadway cares, equity fights, and these actors fund benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were doing a Jerry Herman tribute. Mm. And they had uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell was supposed to sing I Am What I Am. Now, okay, I love Brian. As long as a, <laughs> we have history and there's a thing there, which is great. Yeah. But for 
some reason he dropped out and friends of mine were putting it together and they came to me and said, well, do you think you could do it? I said, well, of course I could do it. I could have done it in the first place. But yeah. So, you know, it was the end of Act 1. If I have to say so myself, I killed it. Of course you did. I would love, is there, I'd love to hear a recording of that. There is a recording oh, of yes. it. It's called Tap Your Troubles Away. That's the name of, of the, the benefit. Okay. And it's on uh, LML Music. Oh. And they're amazing people. And it was a, it was an amazing uh, group of people. Uh, Angela Lansbury and Carol Channing switched oh. roles. Oh. Carol Channing sang Mame. Angela Lansbury sang oh, Dolly. Oh, I think I've seen a clip of that somewhere. Sure. Yes. Or did it? Peters. Oh. I mean, the roster of people was outstanding because oh, they were wonderful. all, you know, Jerry's people. Yes. Right before I went on, Leslie Uggam sang If He Walked to My Life. Oh. And I want to tell you, she killed it. Oh, well, and she I always thought, does. Oh, yeah. my God, I've got to follow her singing. What oh. am I going to do? Oh, well, you're you. It's totally different. <laughs> well, I it's mean, oh, it's that same thing of you say to yourself, well, you know, you have to, as they used to say in vaudeville, whoever it is is always your opening act. So you, That's you right. There's know, always just, somebody. Yes. There's always somebody. But you so, two you are know, such different. And it's so so wonderful in such different ways. And that's what's so, the, the diversity of just yeah, among oh, you guys. it was great. Oh, well. And, 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 and I was closing the act, the first act. Wonderful. So you got to do um, uh, "I Am What I Am," which was like you, 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 you were saying. It's sort of you feel sometimes like yeah, if you're the, the second, second choice, choice yeah. but then you you keep but it, that's you happened it a few apart. times for yeah. me, and, but yeah. it always turns out to be to my benefit. Is that know? what happened with the Cowardly Lion and the Wiz too? Well, so yes, yes, in a way, because I auditioned for the Wiz. I, they had already cast it. I mean, I wasn't really on the scene when they cast it originally, mm-hmm. the production. Mm-hmm. As I said, I saw it in its pre-Broadway uh, run mm-hmm. in Detroit at the Fisher Theater. Yeah. So I wasn't around to audition for the original casting. But afterwards, when they had come to New York, of course, they had open calls, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And I went in once to audition because they were looking for replacements, as they say, you know. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is restocking the files, you know. Right. And they were just like, thank you. That was great. Thanks so much. And I thought, mm. I know I'm perfect with this part. You can't tell me that's it. Right. But my naivete did not, I didn't understand at the time that these were just calls to re-put people in the files that could be mm. possible at later. some point. Yeah. But by the time I did Guys and Dolls and got all the recognition, and I, what really did it is I put on a, what we called a club act at the time. Mm-hmm. We would, I guess, refer to them now as a cabaret act. It wasn't a cabaret act because it was at a 400-seat theater and it was at this place called Les Mouches and so forth. Ah, Les Mouches, yes. Yeah, Les Mouches, which had been, it was a big disco, but they also had a big club room. There. Yeah, and Patti LuPone had a lot of, uh, as a recording. Yes, Patti LuPone did a run yes. there, like a <laughs> six-week or five-week run. I love that you know that. And uh, so I did my show there. And in the show, I did this thing called a tribute to Black Broadway because there were a lot of black shows running at the time. And I would, you know, I did numbers for Raisin. I did numbers, obviously, my own number. I did uh, uh, Mean O'Lion from The Wiz and something else. And I connected them all by, you know, he's on down the road. Well, we've done Raisin, now we're gonna, he's on down, he's on down the road. I did a little dancing. And I'd say, then there was this, and then there was that. So cast from some of the cast from the Wiz came to see my show as uh-huh. people did you know everybody went to see everybody's everything and Clary's Taylor God rest her went back to Ken Harper who was the producer and the uh, conceptualizer of the Wiz and told him you got to see this guy the guy is the guys and dolls and so on and so forth so uh, I get a call guys and dolls wrapped up you know it goes and I got a call from the uh, Wiz casting office that Ken Harper wanted to see me at the Majestic Theater you know mm. and I thought they 
seen me. And somebody, my agent said, no, no, you don't understand. They've seen you, but they now they want to see, see you. <laughs> That's the difference, right? Yes. And I went in and I sang Mean Old Lion and something else. And uh, uh, he told me, walked up to the edge of the stage, and he says, go downstairs and get your costume measurements. And it took me a minute to realize wow. that I got the job, you know. Right. Uh, but that's how I came to it. But there had been, let's see, Ted Ross was the original line. Al Fan replaced him. Uh, Jimmy Wigfall had been doing it before I came in. So I was like the fourth line. Right. But they were turning them over pretty fast. Right, and you get you get to <laughs> be a part of a, of a hit show. And, and, and you know, oh, my when God. I well, talk, it was still a huge hit. Right, at that time. And when I talk to people, yeah. you know, a lot of other um, Broadway performers and others, they talk about the difference between getting to step into a role versus originating a role that is forever identified yeah. with you. So let's talk about some of those because you have, ste- you got to step in. Well, let me just, I want to add yes, one thing to that, yes. if I may. Is of course. That when I went into the show, as you said, it had been originated by Ted Ross, mm-hmm. but they were looking, and I like to say this because I like to legitimize at least that I could do something different. They were looking for someone to bring something different to it. They had three people sure. already there who were more or less following in the mold of how it had been done originally. And Jeffrey Holder worked with me, and it was a thing. They said, look, we want you to do your version of this. We don't want you to do what it was before you, meaning Jimmy Wigball, God rest him. We want you to do something else. Let's see what you want to do with it. So they allowed me that freedom, which I think, even though in the end, I mean, it had to fit into the production. It couldn't be some, you know, completely new form thing. But it did allow me a freedom to create the parameters for my version of it rather than just fitting into what it had been thus before. And that gave me a little bit of distinction because it was sort of a boost to the show that I was, you know, I was from Guys and Dolls and that I had, it was sort of a new take on it a little bit. That's nice. Well, I don't think. Hey, I don't think in the end it was that different. But I think no, they at least gave me. No, the, but they gave me the freedom to feel. That that's way, what I was. You know? And I hear that similar story with other people I interview in the same situation. That sometimes yeah. you're given that freedom, and it depends on how much perhaps they trust the artist. And sometimes they don't give you the freedom, and sometimes the show's super tight, and you have to do exactly what in Zach's Oh, absolutely. But it absolutely. sounds that you were able. You know, they wanted a little bit of a refresh. Refresh. Yeah. That's because nice. I think uh, in, in yeah. concept, that's how the show was created. Everybody brought something to what they were doing, even though the roles were written. Yeah. And I think that had stopped at a point because it was a hit show. And as you know, with a hit show, you don't fool with it. You keep right. it the way it is the and then you just keep it going. Yeah. And they were finally far enough into it where they could play with confidence. it a little bit. You yeah. Know? Well, that's a great, it's great that you had that experience. And so then from that, how did you get to, was it Ain't Misbehaving next? Was that the next thing that gave you the opportunity to yes. originate a role on Broadway that was yes. yours? Yes. Yes. How, how did that well, go? Well, I about? left The Wiz because, you know, I'd done it for almost two years, or two and a half, a year and a half, something like that. And it was a very physical role, so it took a lot of toll on my knees. I can tell you now oh, sure. that I still do yeah, it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, I thought I'd done it enough. And I said, yeah. okay, I got to go. Well, I left, and then to be honest with you, they brought me back again. <laughs> so I did it for like four more months after I'd actually left. <laughs> God bless Jimmy, Jimmy Wigfall came back. And then they let him go again. Oh, they give you a break. <laughs> and yeah. they brought me back, mm-hmm. and I did it again for a period of time. And when I left, I told him, I said, look, I'm done. Seriously, thank you. It's been wonderful. It's been amazing, sure. but I, I want to move on now. Yeah. And I was, you know, doing nothing. <clears throat> and I, um, yeah, the 
quick version is I heard about them wanting to put this piece together at Manhattan Theater Club mm. of Fats Waller's music. And that's about all it was at the time. Yeah. And they were seeing everybody, all kinds of people, because they were looking for types and people, you know, mm-hmm. to bring, as we now know, their own personalities to the show, to whatever, mm-hmm. to whatever it was going to be. There was no show. Right. And um, we now know they hired myself, Nell Carter, Andre DeShields, the late Nell Carter, Andre DeShields, the late Amelia McQueen. Mm. And at that time, uh, our Irene Cara was our other character. Oh, I did not know and, that. Um, okay, all right. That's yes, the news. Yes, yes, wow. Irene Cara, fame, a fame fame. fame. Yes. She was the original uh, other lady. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put us all together. And we, you know, we went down to Murray Horowitz's house down in the village. Mm-hmm. It was such sweet times because we just sat there and went through song after song after song and these stacks of mimeographed. Oh my God. Music. Yeah. Picking songs and playing with them and so forth. This is before we ever got on our feet doing anything. And it just sort of, it was one of the most I can say as far as, you know, when I get to tell the whole story in my my book. uh, (laughs) It was so, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm (laughs) starting. It was so organic because it truly was. I mean, when you hear stories about how Chorus Line started with the interviews and sitting around in the circle and the dancers talking and telling the stories, it was that same kind of organic uh, thing. You know, even when we started rehearsing, I always like to tell the story. We got to the end of the day and Armelia had this number, Squeeze Me. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody was tired. We've been working all day. And uh, uh, Richard Maltby and Murray said, oh, we just want to go over Squeeze Me, but Luther Henderson, we just want to go over Squeeze Me before you leave. And she was like, oh, God, I'm so tired. We all said, well, we'll stay. We'll stay with you while you do it. Okay. <laughs> so she leaned against the wall as she was tired, put her hands behind her back, and they started playing, oh, daddy, squeeze me and squeeze me. And we all looked at each other like, that is magic. And mm. I'll never forget Andre DeShield said at the end, he says, bat your eyes, bat your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and she went, what? I just get so you know and you squeeze me. Bat, 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 bat. And he was like, yes, Diva. Yes, uh, that's it. Wow. And it never changed. That's wow. why I like to tell that story. Wow. She Great did it. They wanted it. was so important to preserve it that when we, you know, met at Theater Club, we were on this little stage standing. She stood against the wall just like she had that mm. day. Wow. And when it went to Broadway, they thought, how are we going to, Richard thought, how are we going to, pres- and Arthur Faria, who would come into it as choreographer, how, he was there then, how are we going to preserve that moment? When we put this up, Robert, because she couldn't lean against the wall, she could. So that's what came from the thing of having her on the back of the piano, mm. and we turned the piano around, and she was still standing, virtually, if you will, against the wall with her hands behind her back, singing the same way she did it that day when she was tired and didn't want to do it. You know. Wow. So I never knew. The, I of, never knew the origin of that, and I've watched it a million times, and always thought this is yeah. such a neat interpretation, and that's where it came from. <laughs> where it came from oh. but i mean that's the kind of organic thing you know happened with that show and putting it together and i like to say you know i give richard and and murray so much credit for conceptualizing it and having the idea and and putting the five of us who were five supporting people basically mm-hmm. character supporting people putting the five of us together as leads yeah. which gave it a tremendous amount of power and support for each other. I think that's why it worked, because we weren't leading men and women. We were supporting character people. And putting us all together, we became leading men and women, but it was from a character-supportive 
mentality, if you will. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that, you know, which is one of the interesting things, which is a whole subject unto itself, that the show, and I've directed it four times uh, Mm -hmm. since, Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting thing because people, you know, they talk about, well, you know, it was just, those characters were us. They were not written down by somebody and this is what this person does and this is what this lady and this man does. They were us. Mm. They were personifications of our research into the period right. and marrying into it many, many elements of Fats Waller's persona. And they were us. Mm-hmm. So in times I've gone to uh, a directed, one time, one of the companies, they were like, uh, we'll have man one, man two, oh. woman one, two, three. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> they have no, names. <laughs> and the names are in the scripts. It's yeah. not like when you get the rental materials, that's how they're doing. Yeah. But they decided, I said, no. I said, what I am here for is I will make the differentiation and mm-hmm. I will explain to the company mm-hmm. that you're going to play yourself and you're going to bring to it your own energy, but you are playing Nell Carter. That's yeah. who that woman was. It's just as if her name was Carol Smith. You're right. playing Nell Carter and now you bring to it what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always a big stickler about that and I give them the reasons and once they knew the reasons, they all understood. Well, yeah, once they have the background. I said, it's our legacy. Yeah. Sure, well, I said, it's our legacy. It's, it's not just yeah. man one and man two. Yeah. And, you know. The characters have the names. Ken... You know, I mean, it's there, right? If I recall in the script, right? The character, absolutely, yeah, and so absolutely, because that, that is that's all there was. There was no script. Yeah, know? it's yeah, it's an authorship. Yeah. It's, it's 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 those characters were absolutely. created by you guys as an authorship. It's really like yeah. creating choreography, and that's not uh, it's not uh, common because yeah. not a lot of shows have that ability or have that Correct. that start. But it's very important, I think, in a historical context that that always is there mm-hmm. because it is our legacy and it is mm-hmm. our authorship, if you will. And then that and show, that show was so successful. I mean, it was everywhere. It was, I think, at least my my memory is that it was a, a you know a Tony Award winning successful show, and no one expected, I think, a show like that to have the success that it had because it was different. You know, it was a review style. Show right, 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 and that's what people did. And it also basically came out of nowhere. I mm-hmm. mean, if you back it up, we opened on May the 9th or eighth, and uh, we were on Manhattan Theater Club. I want to say in December mm. or November. So between November into May, all of this happened. Wow, amazing! You know, we were on. All we played off Broadway. We had a month or two down where they got the Broadway show, quote unquote, together. We rehearsed for Broadway. We opened. We opened on the last night of Tony eligibility. Oh wow, wow! Yeah. Right under the wire. Now, of well, course, people knew about it because it was a big hit off Broadway. Yeah, you know, so people knew about the show, and everybody came to see it. As it built the as momentum. Previews, right? It built the momentum and 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 got everything going. Wow, what a great experience! And and you know, and then from that to Cats is kind of a little bit. There's there's years, a few years in between, right? From that to 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 old creating old Deuteronomy in the, in the Broadway cast of Cats. So how did you, what, what was the process in between those two things? Did you get, how did you get to the Cats experience from the Eight Misbehaving? They're so different. Well, I mean, Eight Misbehaving ran for a long time. We there did it go. on Broadway and then we did it in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then I did it in Paris. So the right. time in between, I was actually doing Eight Misbehaving. Right. Got compressed. As a matter of fact, when I went, when we went to do the NBC television special, I was rehearsing 
for my audition of Cats. Wow. So it, that was what went on in the inter, in the interim. It wasn't like there was a downtime and nothing was happening. Right. I was doing a misbehaving the whole time, but in different places. You know, yeah, you were fully um, filling that out. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, we were engaged in that. But at any rate, uh, I had gone to the closing performance of Ain't Misbehaving on Broadway. I wasn't in the show at the time, but I went to the closing performance and Bernard Jacobs of the Schubert organization, the great Bernard Jacobs, said to me, uh, have you been in for Cats yet? And I didn't think anything was in Cats for me. I thought it was a dancer's show and that's what it was, right? And he said, I think there's a number, or there's a role for you that you'd be perfect for. And I thought, well, I didn't know anything about it. Nobody called me in, blah, 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 blah. He said, I want you to go up to Vinnie Lip's office. He was the casting director, and I want you to, I'll, I'll arrange it. Now, this is the Bernard, the head of the shoot organization. <laughs> yeah. He said, I'll arrange it, and you get the song, and I want you to learn that song, and I'm going to have <laughs> I'm gonna have them bring you in. I said, well, when could it be? We're on our way to L.A. to shoot the that, but that. He said, don't worry about it. We'll get you in there. We'll get you in there. So the last week of the, rehearse, of the uh, audition process of Cats, which had gone on for six months, mind you, wow. six months, the last week I came in on a Monday, they had me come back on Friday and sing again and whatever else I did. And over the weekend, they decided the company and they announced it the following Monday. So wow. some people, like Betty Buckley, of course, tells the story. She was the first woman they saw and she was the last one they <laughs> saw. But it was six months in the interim, right? In between, yeah. You know, and oh. I came in at the end, so it was like a breeze. It was like a skate in a, on an ice rink for me because wow. I didn't go through all the agony of waiting to find out like everybody sure. else. Sure. But even in that week, mind you, it had already gone out to the press, and there were things in the paper saying, you know, Ken Page is under Kelver consideration oh, for the role geez. of Old Deuteronomy. And before that, they had said it would be Robert Conrad from Jake and the Fat Man, and this name and oh, that geez. name. And I mean, you know, every week it was a big deal. Yeah. So every week, every day, there was something about cashier may play Grizabella. You know, I mean, it was crazy. Right. And uh, uh, within, like I said, within that last week, it came out that I was under consideration, which I was like, wow, how'd that get out? Of course, they were leaking it, you know. But um, that following Monday, as I said, they called and offered me the part. So that's the trajectory of the time in between. Uh, that was like 1978 to 1982 and so it really wasn't that long when you, know? you got when you got the gig as we say when you got the part for cats did you have any idea that it was going to be the huge global phenomenon that it ended up being well we did have some idea because it was a huge hit in london right the london i thing. mean our show as it was 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 happening because it was a huge hit in London. I wouldn't say it was a global hit yet because it hadn't been everywhere else, right, but it was a huge hit there. So that we knew. I mean, people, some people flew over to see it. Or just, I mean, Terrence Mann tells a story of how he flew to London mm -hmm. to see it, you know, and so forth. And uh, I didn't see it in London, but I knew there was this huge hit. The cast album had come out. Everybody was talking about it. I mean, it was a big deal before we ever even opened on Broadway. Wow. And when they were doing our production, it was a huge deal because it was coming to America, you know, <laughs> right. and um, in the interim, just to, you know, after we opened on Broadway, the national tour was done fairly quickly, mm. and there was a company that was opened in Japan, and it just went off like wildfire fire yeah. everywhere, so that's when it became a global phenomenon, but a lot of that seems to have historically 
been credited to the American cast because it sort of launched it off into its present show that it was at the time. Our show was a little different than the London production. Mm-hmm. The London production was very British, and there were things and numbers that were taken out mm-hmm. and added and so forth. So our production became the the uh, the uh, blueprint for all the other productions, and Afterwards. I think that's why the American company gets so much credit. You know, right? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff with social class and. And thing in the British, perhaps that in the American was was perhaps changed because we don't have the same kind of social strata. We have a different kind of social strata. But um, speaking of all of that, so here I am thinking thinking to myself: here's this wonderful, fabulous African American man who has been doing this for decades. You've been around. You know, people are now talking about you know BIPOC representation specifically. You know, on stage and, and increasing representation. But you've been in the trenches working for a really long time. So do you do you have anything that you wanted to you know that you think can be done to increase the representation further for non-white folks on stage? Or you know, what do you think about that whole conversation? And what do you think needs to be done, if anything? Well, I mean, that's a big question, and there's sure. many facets to it. And I don't want to minimize it by giving some pat, pat answer about it but i will yes. say this for someone having seen the all-black production hello dolly which was groundbreaking at that time mm-hmm. uh and then being in guys and dolls which was groundbreaking at the time i like to also talk about the fact that there were like eight black shows running on broadway at that period which wow. has never happened again yeah. so i've seen a lot of change a lot of things i think there was a period later down the road where we kind of went backwards I mean, if you've got eight black shows running, there was Guys and Dolls, Bubbling Ground Sugar, uh, Trim and Isha, uh, yeah. Me and Bessie, Arms Too Short to Box with God, Houston yeah. Grand Opera's Porgy and Bess. I mean, there were all of these productions yeah. happening. The Wiz, needless to say. Yeah. Um, so it's a tough, you know, because now here we are these many, many, many years forward with so many strides and so many things that have been accomplished. And yet for the theater, it feels like it sort of went backwards at a point. Yeah, Um, And I think to just move it forward to what we're talking about today, I think the answer, and there's, it's a multi, you know, there's many, many facets to what could be the answer. But I think one of the things is, it's representation. And most of the time we always think, well, you know, we want to see more people on stage. And that is absolutely wonderful to have and to do and to to accomplish but we also have to think about there has to be black producers and black more black writers and more african-american to move both phrases and terminology uh Mm -hmm. on all levels i've seen now in the last few months so many african-americans have been appointed to artistic directors of companies Mm -hmm. or advisors and things like that that's what's going to really make the difference because if nobody's in the room where it happens, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Nobody can really represent. And yeah. that's been a lot of the case, you know. Absolutely. I watched uh, the 40-year-old version the other night. Mm. If you've seen that, you should check it out. Yes, I saw something uh, on it. Was, it's on, is it on Netflix or, or Prime? It's on Netflix. Netflix. And it's great because it hits, it really touches on some of the things. I mean, mm. the people with the money, the people calling the shots have for a long time been the same people. Sure. And there have been, you know, firebrands like Joseph Papp was one of them, where he really was in the trenches and yes. presented diverse theater yeah. for the people. That's mm-hmm. the thing people have to remember. The public was done. The public theater <laughs> was done yeah. for the people. So they took shows to the Latin American ex, mm. you know, neighborhoods. They took shows to Harlem. They did it for the people. Mm. So their shows always represented not just 
black, white. There was Latino and Asian and all yeah. these other different uh, uh, people that were involved in the public. And I think that's a great example. The public isn't as like that as it used to be mm. and nothing against them, but it just, you know, Joe Papp was the driving force of yeah, that. But at any rate, um, I think what's happening is a new awakening and I mm. think it's a necessary awakening like the rest of the country. Yes to the things that have been systemic all along. I think Broadway has moved along at a pace, and every now and again you have your breakout stars and the shows and the things where people went, oh yeah, there's there are black people mm-hmm. on Broadway. There's African-American representation, and they're not wrong. Yeah. But the difference is it was always at someone else's uh, behest. Yeah. Uh, I'll produce this, but then I want this change, I want that change. Or I want this person, I want that person. I don't want that person, I want this person. And all that sort of thing. And that's all okay within a balance. Mm-hmm. But I think what we need, if there's a word I would put out there, it's balance. We need to be represented on all levels. Right. You know. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. Behind the scenes is perhaps, you know, being on stage is important for visibility, but behind the scenes in terms of getting things done, whether you're writing a play or a book to a musical or lyrics, or you're producing, super important. Um, you know, I just interviewed last week Blair Russell, who's one of the producers of Slave Play. And, uh, you know, to have a young African-American man talking to me, a young black man talking to me about producing a a big play on Broadway. I thought that was really fascinating. Right. And so he was talking the same things you are, which is the, you know, getting, getting in the room, you know, and, and from the beginning, from inception and being oh, yeah. you know, artistic that director. Makes, it makes most of the difference. Right. And I'm not saying it makes all of the difference or that it ever has, but it makes now in terms of what we need to happen now yeah. in this day and age of black lives matter and so forth and so on. You have to be in the room. I've had conversations with people, places I've worked, and they're like, well, you know, we don't have a black audience and nobody come. And I said, well, why would they come? I mean, just yeah. in terms of representation, there's nobody on the stage. You have to build I mean, there's you have to build one it. or two people. The, yeah, the property doesn't necessarily speak. I said, mm. you have to build that. Yeah. And if people know that there's representation, and we're just talking about on stage for sure. the moment, if they know there's representation, then they will come to see it. That coupled with educating the African-American community to the fact that all theater is for you. Yes, it doesn't just, just right. be about you. Yeah. All theater is for you. Mm. You could go and see anything and relate to it because human experience is not all is not all different. Some of it is the same, you yeah. know. And yeah. uh, I think that's important too. That going into the African American community, there's a a sense of this belongs to you too. You're not just an invited guest. Oh, absolutely, you that's know? such a great point. This belongs to you as well, yeah. you know. Because when you think about that kind of metaphor, that means it's somebody else's house. Somebody else has prepared the meal. Somebody else has arranged the seating. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so so they don't know what you like to eat. Yeah. They don't know what you don't, what you do. You're just an invited guest, which means, I think there's a line in, in uh, The Way We Were, wonderfully written by Arthur Lorenz, who says, mm. Barbara Streisand says, I feel like everybody else was invited to dinner and I was invited for drinks. Oh, <laughs> great know? line. Yeah, yes, Arthur Lorenz yeah. is great. And I know. think that's, that's been the case for a lot of the African-American community for a long time. And understand, I want to say again, that doesn't mean we haven't had opportunities, but we're at a point now of realizing that unless you have the financial standing and you're in every room where it's happening, you're not guaranteed anything because somebody can decide at any moment that they don't want to give it to you. Yeah. You know, the shift to politics, all that sort of stuff. And that's what's going to make the difference in the future. Absolutely. And I'm starting to see that happen. When you were talking about artistic directors, I have a good friend of mine, Michael J. Bobbitt, who just became artistic director at uh, New 
new rep in Boston, outside of Boston. And it's so great to have, um, you know, people of color in positions where they can make decisions and where sure. they can have some budget or where they can have some political as well as, you know, artistic leadership and power. And that's you know, I think it also goes back to the basic fear, I believe, of, of like a lot of what America deals with, which is if you're given equal footing, you will upseat us, so oh, to speak, and we won't be able to be the ruling thing. Yeah, and you want to yeah. say, well, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, how about we all are equal and we yeah. all make the decisions and we all benefit from them. But I think there's this, this thought that given any group, not just African-American, given True. any group having an equal footing, they will shift it to their side and then quote unquote, the white theater won't be what it, and it's kind of like, not like that. There's a lot of highly educated people out there who know theater. Right. You know, they're African-American or they're, they're Asian or they're, they're Latinx, but they know theater. And it doesn't mean that they're only going to be able to do what is, is specific to them, right. but they will have a different point of view about the, the, hey, the, the menu that's on at the dinner table. Right, and then it'll, it might even create a new language, um, a new type of theater that could be even more fascinating for our 21st century. Because, you know, if you look at it, musical theater developed out of a combination of various cultures. And if we hadn't allowed those cultures to combine in some way, we wouldn't have musical theater. So, you know, Absolutely. I think we need to let that happen. Let it be a balance. I think your word balance is a perfect way to look at it. But listen, we're almost, we're almost out of time. This conversation has been so fascinating. I want like two more episodes to to talk to you, Ken. Uh, yeah. But um, I want to talk a bit before we before we go. I can't go without talking a bit about your show, page by page. I want to yes. talk a bit about your vision for it and how did you put that show together. I want you to be able to talk about that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, and I'll put it in a capsule because I want to talk more about what I'm planning to do next with oh, the idea. Also wonderful. Okay. Yes. Go. Uh, yeah. Well, what happened was, you know, I was in L.A. and you know, in L.A. If you out on a TV series or something, you're in between jobs. It's unlike New York, we can always do a little something. In LA, you're either working or you're not working. Right. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm bored. I come from the theater. I'm trying to be visible in Hollywood and out, you know, and so forth. And, you know, I did some really good things, but it wasn't all that I wanted. And my heart and soul has always been in the theater. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'd always done my quote-unquote club act, cabaret act, so I knew what it was like to put a show together for myself, to showcase myself. And I thought, well, what could you do that would allow you to incorporate everything you've done and still do what is basically your cabaret? And I thought to myself, tell your story. Tell your basic life story up to this point. It incorporates everything you've done. And therefore, you can do all the numbers from all the hit shows you've been in, and then you can sing all the songs from all the shows you love that aren't yours, and so on and so on and so on. And I've started writing this show, and I realized uh, that how I was doing was, was was page by page. Obviously, there's a play on, you know, on my name. And uh, I wrote it as if I had written a book, ah. and that I was in the show reading from the book that I had written page by page, chapter by chapter, nice. and going in when you, it, there is a recording if anybody wants to get Yes, I was going to say, you music. can find it it's on, page by page. Yeah, LML, LML Music, it's a live uh, release, yeah. you know, recording, and it's on all places where they sell music, I saw it before coming on this interview, I saw that it's on, yes. on Apple and Amazon, etc., you people can download it, it's a great, it's a great show, Ken. Yeah, and I, I feel really good, and I'm very happy, 
it was one of those things to talk about show business where I thought I'm doing the show because this wonderful theater Poway in California uh, offered to put it up. And they said, well, we want to have it with a big orchestra and we want to have the whole thing. We'll pay for it. I thought, oh, my God, this oh, is wow. great. If you will just write it and do it, we'll pay for it. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to have a big show like that go up in a, you know, 1,200 or so seat house, if I can record it, I'll have a CD yeah. and I'll have a, a, a record of it. Yes. But it was one of those things where it's one shot. You get to record it. If it goes well, you got a recording. If it doesn't go well, you tried, right? Mm -hmm. And it was really on me. I mean, it was on the musicians too, but I had to get it right and do the thing, which added excitement, you know. And long story, we did do it and it did go well and I was able to edit it a little bit afterwards and the recording. You know, there's many things that could have been a lot better given more time and setups and things like that but it's fine you know right, and, you and my thing was it's theater it's yes. theater and it's supposed live. to be live and if mm -hmm. there's glitches and things that are there that was part of the show and i'm okay with that so there's how we ended up with this two cd disc about page by page which was basically my life story up to that point mm -hmm. so what i've decided i was saying it was based on a book mm -hmm. and i did the show all around i've traveled all over with it and i was somewhere in the south quick story and uh this lady came backstage after the show, Southern lady, very well-bred lady, you could see. And she says, well, my friends and I were here, and we absolutely enjoyed your performance, Mr. Page, blah, 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 blah. She says, but I have a bone to pick with you. Mm. I thought, uh-oh, hey, uh-oh, I'm in the south, what's that going to be? Mm. And she said, we all ran to the lobby at the end of the show to buy the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> I said, ah, <laughs> you know. She says, you talked about the book and you were reading from the book. And at the end of the show, you said, there's a thousand more stories, but you'll have to read them in the book. So we ran to the lobby to get the book and there was no book. Where is the book? Oh. I said, oh, and I explained it was a concept and so forth. And she looked at me and raised one eyebrow. She says, well, we were prepared to buy the book. Right. And I'm point. just saying a word to the wise is sufficient. <sighs> Oh, okay. my God, what a great story. If that's not a I sign. I never forgot that. Yeah, so, if that's not a sign. Yes, so I'm saying that to say that is what I am now engaged in. I've started working on the book. Oh, and the reason, it. not so much to, you know, say, hey, hey, this is what I did and who I am. But I realize there's a lot of names and people, you know, a lot of people have been lost in the AIDS epidemic and the times that I came through questions that you just asked about, you know, at a time there when it was Pearl Bailey and Cap Kelly, I was very, very happy and very, very fortunate to work with the best of the generation before me who were the originators. Sure. We're talking about Pearl Bailey, Cap Calloway, mm. you know, to know Diane Carroll, to meet to Lena Horne. I worked with Sammy Davis. I mean, all of those people came in and out of my life as I went along in those early years. And to be able to pass along what I learned from Billy Wilson and Jeffrey Holder and all these people, uh, I think my life has been a, an amalgam of a lot of things. You know, to be in something like Cats, which is a huge, huge, as you said, a global phenomenon, yes. and to be an African-American in that p position, not a lot of people have been able to have that and do that. No. And uh, to go to London, as I said later, and put it on, on film and on and on. I've worked in the West End, Children of Eden, and to be able to... Um, tell that story through the times that I was living in right. and how it affected me. And, you know, it's juicy. I was a Studio 54. Come on. You know. <laughs> so you've got, you've got some interesting stories to tell. And, you know, I've got some interesting stories to tell. And so people have to check out the book. God bless them. Yes. I've been telling them to them for 
years and quoting different things and talking. They're like, how do you remember all that? I said, I just have that kind of memory. And they've been saying to me for years, you should write a book. You should write a book. But my thing was I felt like, who cares about my I didn't want to read. But once oh, no. I started beginning to understand and I did page by page, I realized there is a universality to what I have learned about Absolutely. life, not just career. Absolutely. And if I can get that in a book, I think there's something to say to not only people who were there, but to generations coming Absolutely. about what that time was and about maybe a little bit of how to go about some of what they're trying to do. And I want to so read really I want to read that book and I want to read in that book some more stories not just about your theater work cuz that's what we covered today, but I know yes. that you have a lot of stories about your film work uh, as Mr. Oogie Boogie in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes. Also your work recently for those who are a little bit younger who may be researching but in Dream Girls, I loved you in yes. Dream Girls. That was oh such a nice I was uh, so thrilled to get to be part of that. To have, I call that the, sto the stormy weather of our time. <laughs> <laughs> to have you and Loretta Devine there was just such a nice, nice touch. Yes. Well, was, we, were, we were representing. You were battle. representing. We were representing the Broadway community, and, and, and um, Bill Condon was very conscious of that. Well, he but, knew exactly you know, what he so was So those doing. stories are going to be in the book, I hope. And also a little bit about yes. a, a, a movie that means a lot to me that was based on a stage play and that I saw also as a young man, and I didn't tell you after seeing uh, Ain't Misbehavin' and seeing you in Cats, then seeing the film by Harvey Firestein of Torch Song Trilogy and seeing you in Absolutely. that film meant a lot to me and I think meant a lot to a lot oh, of LGBT uh, young men at the time, LGBT. I was a teen teenager. Yeah. To see that uh, you in that film was really a nice representation of a variety of diversity in, yeah. in all sides. So thank you. And, and, you and are welcome. So we want to hear that story. You know, it's that thing you were saying about, you know, you have to rep Somebody asked me, and I'll say this, and I hope it doesn't sound too boastful. Someone said, well, did you wave the flag, you know, for this, for LBGTQ, for Black America? Mm. I said, baby, I was the flag. You lived it. You lived it. Exactly. No, you have to wave the flag. the flag. You are the flag. So raising a flag and in waving all its colors. The flag, in all know? its colors, of all the kinds of colors. But yes. yeah, uh, Mr. Page, Mr. Ken yes, Page, sir. thank you so, so much for being on. This is a thrill and an honor for me to have you on American Theatre Artists online I, I am forever grateful to you for saying yes and taking of your time of being on this podcast and I think a lot of the people listening will are, are, are going to get a lot and they're going to buy your book because they're going to want to yes, know yes look for that book <laughs> I'll and be watching don't see it ask I'm buying, the, you know, and people should get the, I, this is just me. I swear I'm not plugging anything for you. It's just me, the page-by-page page recording live concert on Amazon and on um, uh, anywhere you can find it where it sells, any place that sells good music. Page-by-page, um, page, that would be a primer to get ready for the book. That's what I think. Yes, absolutely. Like, like that nice, nice, nice Southern lady who came in and spoke to you about it. Thank you so much, Ken. I yes. really appreciate your being on, on American Theater Artists Online. I'm to give her a big that's right. So she was my true inspiration That's for writing right. this book. Whoever you are, wherever you are, thank you. It's a great idea. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of, of your afternoon. It was, it was my pleasure. And sorry about being late. Oh, never, <laughs> never. It was wonderful. Thank you.